Welcome to the Unstoppable Yes You podcast, where we celebrate the achievements of Caribbean people to inspire the next generation. I'm your host, Curlis Phillip, and we're kicking off Caribbean American Heritage Month with a brand new series. In this series, I'll introduce you to authors from across the Caribbean diaspora who are bringing our stories and our culture to the forefront. They'll share helpful tips for those of you that are interested in learning what it takes to become an author, and you may even find a title or two that pique your interests. Today, I am happy to be speaking with Jasmine Seeley. Jasmine is one of the most exciting and powerful new voices in fiction. Hailing from Barbados, she's now based in Vancouver, British Columbia. In 2020, Jasmine won the University of British Columbia HarperCollins Fiction Prize for her first novel, Island of Forgetting. And we're going to get all into it today. So welcome, Jasmine. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So I grew up in Barbados. Um, I moved to Canada when I was 18 for university and ended up uh, just settling here. And I've been here ever since. Um, but I'm, I'm an island girl at heart, always have been, always will be. Um, and I've always loved to write and always loved to write about Bajan culture and Bajan history. Um, and I've always been drawn especially to stories that have characters that kind of have to straddle two worlds and feel kind of pulled between um, different identities um, and that's a big theme in in my novel Um, and that's probably because I've always kind of felt that way myself Um, I'm biracial I've you know lived in these two places for most of my life and so yeah (laughs) you touched on this a little bit but how has your background as a Caribbean woman and as an immigrant informed your writing I mean, so much, in such so much so that it's almost difficult to encapsulate it. Um, I think that my identity and my writing are pretty um, intrinsically connected. I don't know if you can really separate the two. Um, I write about the Caribbean, specifically Barbados, because, well, it's like that old adage, you write what you know. Um, that's where I spent, of course, I've, I haven't lived in Barbados now for, you know, over a decade, but there's something about spending your childhood in a place that really just forms who you are and your connection to that place, that landscape. And I've tried to write stories that were set in Canada, but particularly if they're, if the characters are in school or they're, you know, they need to navigate the space. I really struggle with that because despite not having lived in the Caribbean now for over a decade, it's still very much what I know. It's the landscape that I know the best. And so um, when I sit down to write, you know, you, you really are digging into the well of, of what you know, and, and Barbados is what I know. So it shapes everything I write. Um, the, the, the scenery comes to me so readily, the, the voice, the, the, the landscape, I, my stories and my novel tend to be very saturated with like descriptions of the climate and the flora and fauna. So all of that comes out in the work. 
And then in terms of my identity as an immigrant, like I touched on before, um, I think a lot of my characters struggle with a kind of feeling of of ungroundedness and displacement of feeling never quite like settled in one place or another. Um, the the stories often have quite a liminal feeling, like the characters are torn between two worlds and are kind of existing in this liminal state um, where they don't quite have one foot in one place or the other. And so I think that's my personal experience with having immigrated to a new country at 18 and had to kind of reestablish my sense of self in this new place. Um, that really seeps into everything I write. And that makes sense. And I think writing from that place really brings, you know, true authenticity to your story. You wrote your first novel while you were also pregnant and in your final year of graduate school. So what was that journey like for you? Sure. Well, I mean, you make it sound a lot more impressive than it was, but my my graduate degree was a master's in fine arts and creative writing. So the final kind of project thesis that we had to do to graduate with the master's degree was to write a book length project. So the first draft of the novel was that thesis. Um, so I was writing to the deadline so that I could so that I could graduate. And I had originally intended it to be just that, to just be my graduate thesis. And then, you know, maybe I would come back to it later and tweak it and evolve. But it ended up just the the first draft was strong enough that I felt like I could just keep going and keep revising it and kind of maintain that momentum um, and complete a manuscript with what I had from from the draft. And then I got pregnant while I was in the early stages of writing that first draft. Um, and that was difficult because my first trimester, I was extremely nauseous and Funny enough, I one of the first people to find out that I was pregnant was actually my thesis supervisor, who I told even before I told some of my closest friends and family because I had to let her know that I was going to be behind on my thesis because I couldn't even look at a screen. I was so nauseous. Um, so that was that was a challenge. And then I obviously had these two very firm deadlines the one deadline being the thesis deadline that I had to submit by a certain date if I wanted to graduate and not pay another semester's tuition, and the other deadline being, well, the, the birth of my child. <laughs> so I learned about myself during that process that I, I operate very well when I have a lot of pressure and a lot of deadlines. Um, and so I think it was actually more of a motivator than a hindrance, actually, just having the, those deadlines. Um, and I'm I'm going to figure out how I'm going to ever write another book without having some sort of firm deadline. I need to find a way to motivate my, myself. Yeah, there are definitely people who work better under pressure. I know sometimes that's the case for me. I might tend to procrastinate and then um, just give it my all. And sometimes you, your best work come out of that. Yes, I think so. Jasmine, give us a brief synopsis of your novel. Sure. So... The Island of Forgetting is a multi-generational family saga set primarily on a family-owned and operated hotel um, in Barbados. And the story covers uh, four generations um, of this family, beginning with um, the character of Iapetus, who is uh, a young man struggling with 
um, an alcohol addiction in the early 1960s and he witnesses a tragedy in his youth that basically shakes him and shakes his family to the core and so over the next um, you know 50 years we're we're observing the the kind of trickle down effect of of that um, trauma um, how it influences each subsequent generation um, but also the ways in which that trauma is not discussed and the ways in which um, secrets and the things that we don't know about our parents and don't know about our, our ancestors can actually shape our lives. You touched on the fact that um, the characters span uh, multiple generations. So what made you decide to cover such a broad period? Well, I don't know if it was a an explicit decision that I would that I, you know, I sat down and I said, I'm going to write a story that's going to span this much time. I think it was a bit of a chicken and the egg situation. The story that I wanted to tell was was about intergenerational trauma and it was about um, the unknowability of our own past and our parents' past. And there wasn't really any way to tell that type of story without having this expansive time and this whole cast of characters. Um, I just was very fascinated by the idea that we can have these facets of our own personalities and our own characters. And these are so influenced by our parents and our grandparents and then the way that they parent us is itself impacted by things that might have happened in their childhoods that we might not even know about and I just thought that was really interesting this idea of the things we do and don't know about our past and our family's past and how that impacts us and so yeah telling that story over several generations so that we can see those holes and see those secrets as the reader and we have that almost um, like you would call it dramatic irony that we as the readers of the novel know things about the characters that they themselves don't even know because we get to see the past um, on the page. And I and so I really wanted to play around with that and an intergenerational saga was the best way to do that. And do you feel most people, you know, as you think about your, your Caribbean friends across the diaspora, you think most people can relate to to that story? I mean... A hundred percent. I think that, I mean, in the Caribbean, well, we have a, we have a regional inherited trauma from slavery and from the plantation system. And I think we still see the effects of that in our family dynamics and the ways in which um, just certain mental health issues, abuse are just, are just not discussed. Um, and I think that that is slowly changing. I think each subsequent generation is being more open to having these kinds of difficult conversations. But definitely for me in my childhood, my my parents did not talk about those things. And, and if they did, it was, you know, their own parents would have talked about it a fraction of the amount. Um, I just think that there is a bit of this stiff upper lip mentality when it comes to Caribbean parents um, and the idea I think there's this deeply embedded idea that if you aren't 
basically beating your children, then they don't have anything to complain about. You know, there's this sense of, well, you don't even know how good you had it because you should have seen the licks that I got from my father or, you know, and, and so I think where each subsequent generation is trying to break away from that, but it's very, very difficult. And, and the idea of communicating with your, with your children and being honest with them and showing weakness and showing vulnerability, I just think culturally it's just not done. At least, you know, I I don't want to speak too broadly, but for my family and for, a lot of people that I know, I, I know that that ought to be the case. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely resonate with that. And, you know, you touched on mental health, and I know wellness is also another theme that's in the island of forgetting. So tell us why it was so important for you to touch on these topics. Sure. So a big inspiration for me when writing the novel, I can't remember if this conversation happened when I had already started drafting or if it came before, but definitely in the early stages when I was kind of starting to formulate the ideas of what this novel was going to be, I had a conversation, a very kind of deep heart to heart with my father, wherein he revealed multiple traumatic things that had happened to him in his own childhood with his parents. And I remember just having this sense of almost like puzzle pieces fitting together in my mind where I just had this renewed sense of clarity about my own life because of all of these different interactions that he and I had, particularly in my teenage years where we really clashed because I... I like to go out. I was a party girl and it was a, we, there was drama. There was bacchanal every time. And so I just remember thinking, well, why didn't I know this sooner? Why, you know, if I had only understood, you know, your own history, then I could have better understood why you said and did certain things to me. And then I would better understand myself. And so I just, and my family struggles, there's a, there's a history of, of mental illness and, and addiction in my family going back to, you know, great, great uncles. I had a, a great uncle who, like Iapetus in my novel, was um, used to wander the island, would just walk and walk and walk, and people would spot him and they would ring the, the house phone and say, oh, you know, uncle so-and-so has been spotted out in St. Lucie, you know, miles away, someone has to go pick him up. And it's kind of discussed in this way where it's either not talked about or it's joked about and made light of. And I just thought that is so fascinating. Um, and I just wanted to to delve into that and, and try to understand it and try to make sense of it. When you think about mental health, it's definitely something that's brush under the rug and you know coming from a small Caribbean island when I saw people wondering and it was far and few between but when I did see people wondering the thought in my mind was well they have a home to go to there's someone who's going to take care of them and so you never really gave it much thought yeah and I thought that was really fascinating too also when you would occasionally encounter these and they're almost like characters on the street because when you come from a small island you see the same people again and again and you they almost become like characters right like you you oh that that one who lives in town or whatever and I was equally fascinated as well by um 
certain kind of people who you would see again and again in Barbados who maybe had a drug or alcohol addiction and or who were wandering and as you said there weren't very many of them but you would remember them because you would see them often and sometimes they were often people who you would hear through the grapevine came from a good from a good quote-unquote good family you know or were wealthy and then you have to wonder well what happened like have they just gone completely off the rails? Has the family abandoned them? What what gets to a point? Like, how does a, a quote-unquote good family lose its way? Or or how does a person lose its way? Or, or are they abandoned? Are they forgotten? And, and again, that was also, that was just something that was really interesting to me. I remember my senior year of high school, I worked at a grocery store. And there was a gentleman who played every instrument under the sun beautifully. One day I took a break and I just started to talk to him, like, what happened? Come to find out this man was a professor at Howard University. And he said, I was married and, you know, my wife cheated on me and it messed me up. And he moved back to the islands, just wandering the streets. And we're all kind of living so much closer to the edge of that than I think we realize. I think we like to think that we're all safe in our you know, in our lives and the lives that we're living. And that's what I was also exploring in the book is just how easily things can unravel. So Jasmine, which character would you say you identified with the most and why? That's a very good question. I think initially I would have said Calypso because she's very much the heart of the novel for me. She was the original character. The, sto- the, the novel began just as a short story, and then it kind of built up from there, and it began with Calypso and her relationship with her father and with Odie. And I just really identified with her, um, with, the, with the idea of this kind of, young girl who's very precocious very has these kinds of sexual desires but maybe doesn't have the healthiest impulses in the world um and I just I really related to her and empathized with her really greatly originally then Atlas was supposed to just be a secondary character in her section I wasn't going to give Atlas his own um voice but once I started writing Atlas I I just absolutely fell in love with him. He's probably the character who is the least like me, but he's just a character that I I empathize with so much. And then Nautilus, I think in a lot of ways is probably the character who is most like me. He's biracial, um he's queer, I'm bisexual, I'm queer as well. He left Barbados at you know, 17 or 18 to go to Canada, to go to Toronto, which I did as well. So I think I also kind of, I know Nautilus very well. Like he's a character who I I think is probably the most similar to me, but then quite ironically was probably the most difficult to write because I felt he was the most similar to me. So I didn't have that kind of distance. In a lot of ways you'd think writing characters a lot like yourself would be the easiest thing in the world to do but actually it's quite difficult to observe yourself and I find it almost easier to write characters who are not so much like me 
Um, I think that's why I just found it so easy to write Atlas because it was like I I could know him. I could just take a step back and see him in a three, 360 3D way, you know, whereas Nautilus felt sometimes like I was I was just looking at a two-dimensional image. I was always just looking back at my own reflection in a lot of ways. And it was it took effort to kind of step back and and think, okay, well, who is he beyond these identity markers? Who is he beyond being biracial, beyond being fatherless, beyond being queer? Um, and that was a struggle to kind of figure out who he was on a in a deeper way. When you're writing about someone who you feel might be a, a reflection of you, then it really forces you to dive deep. And do you think that that can be scary? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think a good example of this was I was writing about Nautilus's um, kind of biracial identity because it was very important for me to make sure that the reader understood that Nautilus was at least somewhat aware of his privilege as a biracial light-skinned person in Barbados and how the differences in the way he's treated in the encounter that he has with the police versus the way his friend Daniel is treated is based a lot on his on his skin tone and that was that meant that I had to then also examine the ways in which being a lighter skinned person growing up in the Caribbean has been has has benefited me in a lot of ways because of this privilege and has also been caused kind of personal difficulty in some other situations and kind of just examining these tricky sticky issues like shadism you know which is just so real in the Caribbean and it's not something that we talk about too much and if but if you're writing a character who looks the way he looks like you have to be unafraid to tackle these things um and also writing about about his queer identity was difficult. I was not out at the time when I was writing the book. I am now. So it was, I had to grapple with what my position was as, you know, a biracial, a biracial bisexual woman, but who is in a straight relationship with a man. Like, is it my place to write a gay male, you know, character in Barbados? I did so much research. I had, um, sensitivity readers um read the book give me their thoughts I made massive changes due to like you know because of their advice so yeah it was definitely an interesting experience you have to kind of be willing to be introspective but without getting too navel gazing to the point that your characters just end up becoming you know a therapy lesson for yourself right like it is still fiction at the end of the day but yeah, no, it was it was definitely a diff an interesting and, and I wouldn't say difficult experience, but it was definitely defining. As you were writing your book, which came first for you, the plot or the characters and why? Oh, characters, always character for me. Plot is, if I could write the plotless novel, I would. <laughs> <laughs> no plot, just vibes. Um, I Characters for me are always at the forefront. Um, I knew vaguely what I wanted to happen, but the plot also is the thing that changed the most drastically over the course of the, the writing process. The characters were pretty fully formed from day one, and 
their core belief systems, the way they communicated, those never changed from one draft to the next. I would tweak and improve and exaggerate and downplay certain things, but those elements of who they are never really changed. But the plot, I mean, the plot was getting adjusted right down to the very last stage of editing with my editor at HarperCollins. Like we were, we were shifting things around right up until the end. You hinted about this, but you brought Greek mythic characters to what is really a contemporary novel. So what inspired you to do so? So yeah, the Greek mythology was actually the original inspiration for the first short story that I wrote, which was about Calypso. And I cannot remember exactly how it was that I kind of got into the whole idea of Calypso and and the idea, the, the kind of image of her as a Caribbean woman. Okay, Kez the band, which is the, you know, the soca singer from Trinidad, great soca singer. They have a music video in which they have this kind of Caribbean carnival temptress. And the joke in the music video is that she basically kind of seduces this tourist man and he ends up having this wild Caribbean experience. I saw that one. You've seen that music video, right? And I think she might even be called Calypso in the credits of of the music video. And so I thought, so clearly that writer, the director of that music video was going down similar wavelengths of me of just thinking about this play on words between Calypso music and Calypso the Greek character who is this, you know, this uh, seductress nymph who traps this man Odysseus on her island and basically forces him to be in a relationship with her. And I was curious whether or not there was some sort of etymological connection, like between Calypso music and, and Calypso, like if they had the same, you know, root. They don't. It's just a coincidence. But I think that was kind of the original. I was just this Calypso, Calypso, Calypso. It was filing around in my brain, just like an itch I needed to scratch. And then I just kind of kept diving in and diving in. And I just thought there was something so familiar to me about this idea of an island temptress. I think that it's um it's an an image of the Caribbean that we're fed again and again in, in the media that you know you go to you can go to the islands and you can see these beautiful women. And I think that the kind of hypersexualization of Caribbean women is almost sold as part of the tourism package in a lot of ways. Um, and I just thought that that when you if you could you could take the Greek myth and kind of use that Greek myth of of Odysseus from the Odyssey being kind of cast away on this island and and kind of trapped under the spell of this beautiful woman as kind of a metaphor for the idea of the Caribbean paradise and and people coming from afar and I just thought there was a lot to play with there so that was the original inspiration and then once I started writing about Calypso and doing research about her I looked up you know the family tree in Greek mythology and saw that well her father in the Greek mythology is Atlas and then I just started thinking about Atlas this character who was punished by Zeus um, for siding against Zeus in um, this great war and Zeus's punishment for Atlas was that he has to hold up the sky so I just remember thinking okay well he could you know 
what could his relationship be well to the Greek mythology in my novel as well his punishment quote-unquote is that he is banished to this hotel when he has kind of not been forced but he feels obligated to maintain it and run it as part of his legacy and Calypso witnesses this like witnesses her father kind of be put in this position and, and swears that that will never happen to her and that becomes kind of a very fundamental part of her identity this need to break away and rebel and not be what her father has become so the Greek mythology it was on the one hand it acted as kind of a structure and a scaffolding around which I could build the novel because you know I've never written a novel before I'd only ever written short stories and so it was very helpful to have this kind of yeah this 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 structure that I these bones that I could kind of use to help guide me and shape me but it also went beyond that it also inspired the characters themselves and who they were and and the plot and the and the stories themselves yeah that's fascinating so Jasmine, what advice would you give to a young Caribbean um, aspiring writer? I think I would say don't be afraid of the specificity of your own story. I think a lot of young writers in general, but particularly writers of color and writers from places like the Caribbean or, or small islands especially, feel that they need to make their stories more palatable for a wider audience. And by wider audience, I mean a primarily white North American or white European audience. And they perhaps think that the way that they need to do that is to make their stories more general and broader and, you know, less specific and I actually think that that's the opposite of what you could, of what you should do. I think that you should be unafraid to write about the most personal, specific thing that you can think of, even if you think, oh, who is going to care about this little tiny town that I grew up on on this tiny island and who's going to understand these references and can I can I speak in Creole in my book can I use Patois can I use dialect you know just write it exactly as you want to write it because I think there's actually something very appealing about specific stories and I think there's almost a universality in the specific if that makes sense and it feels counterintuitive but the, almost the more general you try to make a story, the less relatable it is because people don't live general lives. People live in individual places. They live in, they live in specific places. They eat specific food. They, they speak specific languages. And people want to be immersed in your little world no matter how unfamiliar it is to them. So I would just say don't be afraid. Write about your neighborhood. Write about your block. Write what you know. And, and don't be afraid to get specific. That's great advice, and I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, what does literary success look like to you? That's a question I've been asking myself a lot lately. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because I think when I first started writing, 
the bar for me was, oh, I just want to get a short story published in a literary magazine. If I could get a short story published in a literary magazine, then I'll consider myself a writer. And then that happened. And then I said, okay, well, I just need to win an award. If I can win an award, then I'll be considering myself a writer. And that happened. And I said, okay, well, I just need to graduate from my master's degree. Graduate. And then it was like, well, I just need to publish a novel. And now I have published a novel. And let me tell you, the imposter syndrome is still real because I still choke a little bit on my words every time I refer to myself as a writer. I don't know if I will ever really feel like I have succeeded as a writer, that if I, if, that I have actually achieved literary success. I don't know when I will cross that imaginary line in the sand. I hope that I do. I hope that ultimately I can feel some sort of satisfaction with what I've achieved. Um, but it is it is a constant a constant struggle. And and even now that I have published a book, I wonder, am I going to be able to do it again? Like, is it lightning in a bottle? How long will it take me to write another one? Even if I do write another one, will it get published? It is. A very very strange industry in that sense in that there is no real finish line um, but I just try to remind myself that life is long and lots of the my lots of my favorite writers and lots of the best writers out there have long chunks of time where they aren't publishing anything at all and that's that's okay you just kind of have to go with the the ebb and flow of things um, but yeah to answer your question I I don't know and I and I would love for someone to tell me <laughs> But in the meantime, you can celebrate the small wins. Yes, exactly. Trying to celebrate the small wins. And there's kind of like finding a balance between not becoming complacent, but also enjoying these small wins. And I'm trying to kind of establish that balance right now. That's awesome. Jasmine, complete the sentence. I feel unstoppable when... When I allow myself to be, I think that um, I am my own worst enemy a lot of the time and the only thing stopping me is me. And when I can kind of get out of my own way, that's when I feel the most unstoppable. When I can accept that really there is no reason for things not to work out. And if I focus on the fact that it's just as likely that things will work out as they won't. Um, and when I can really internalize that, that's when I feel the most unstoppable. That's powerful. Jasmine, thank you for taking the time to share your story with us. It was such a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to be here. Where can our guests connect with you? I am on social media, um, Jasmine Seely. You can look for me um, at Jasmine Seely on Twitter, at Jasmine Francis Seely on Instagram. I'm very searchable. Um, JasmineSeely.com is my website. Um, the Island of Forgetting is published with HarperCollins both in Canada and in the UK. You can find it um, on major bookstores, Amazon, as well as at your local bookstores if you live either in Canada or in the UK. And please do connect with me, especially Caribbean readers and especially Caribbean writers. Please connect with me, reach out. I love to big up my, my fellow Caribbean writers. I want to read your work. I want you to DM me. I, am, I will never be upset. Please, please, please reach out. Thank you. 
To our Unstoppable Yes You Tribe, thanks for your continued support and don't forget to check out more stories about Caribbean impact makers, rising stars, and trailblazers at unstoppableyesyou.com.